0: Welcome to the China in the World podcast, a series of discussions examining China's foreign policy and shifting engagement with the world. The China in the World podcast is brought to you by Carnegie China and hosted by me, Paul Handling. Welcome back to Carnegie China's China in the World podcast. On the last episode of the podcast, I hosted Dong Tao from the East Asian Institute at National University of Singapore to discuss cross-strait relations, and rising US-China tensions over Taiwan. For today's episode, I'm delighted to welcome Evan Laksmana to discuss geopolitics in Southeast Asia and US-China dynamics in the region. And I'm also delighted to announce that uh, Evan has joined Carnegie China recently as a non-resident scholar. Uh, We're delighted to have him. He's he's joining us uh, as Carnegie China Uh, seeks to expand research uh, and focus on perspectives and insights from experts in Southeast Asia, uh, while we further bolster scholarship and dialogue on China's evolving presence in the Asia Pacific, and of course, the important US-China dynamics. Before I dive into the interview with Evan, let me first uh, give a brief introduction. So in addition to Evan's new position as a non-resident scholar at Carnegie China, He's also a senior research fellow with the Center on Asia and Globalization at the Lee Kuan Yew School of Public Policy, and a non-resident scholar with the Lowy Institute for International Policy. His research focuses on military change, civil-military relations and Southeast Asian defense and foreign policies. He was previously a senior researcher at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Indonesia, and the Wang Gung Wu Visiting Fellow with the ICS Yusof Ishak Institute here in Singapore. He's held visiting and research positions with the National Bureau of Asian Research, Sydney University Southeast Asia Center, and German Marshall Fund of the United States, and the S. Rajaratnam School of International Studies at Nanyan Technological University. His research has appeared in a wide variety of journals, such as the Journal of Contemporary Asia, Asian security, Asia policy, and more. He earned his PhD uh, at uh, the University of Syracuse in the Maxwell School of Citizenship and Public Affairs as a Fulbright Scholar. He's got a terrific background, and we're delighted, Evan, to have you on the China in the World podcast, but also as a new non-resident with Carnegie China.
1: Uh, Thanks for having me, Paul. Appreciate it.
0: And I didn't mention that uh, as we talked about before the podcast, your your office is about six floors up from my current office uh, on the fourth floor there at Tower Block uh, at uh, National University of Singapore's Bukatima campus. I'm also glad you're you're a neighbor in that regard.
1: Yes, it's always a great pleasure to meet somebody from the same building, but we meet outside of the office.
0: <laughs> exactly, and and for our listeners who end up, you know, in Singapore on business or work, um, there's also a great little hawker stand just outside uh, of our office building, uh, which I like to go to from time to time. So uh, we invite our listeners to to check that out when they come to Singapore. Well, let's dive in, Evan, because uh, we've got uh, a lot to talk about. And I wanted to start out uh, with the uh, the newly released, and you know, folks have been waiting for it for some time, the U.S. Uh, national security strategy document. It comes out of the White House National Security Council, where I spent five years in the Bush and Obama administration. But as the uh, Biden administration underscored a number of times through its public diplomacy in the Indo-Pacific, the strategy, the national security strategy mentions in terms of the Asia Pacific and ASEAN in particular, it affirms the centrality of ASEAN and it seeks deeper bonds with Southeast Southeast Asian partners. And I just want to start uh Evan because I know you've looked at this closely and you've you've watched US policy evolve over the years under different administrations. But how do you uh how how would you rate US foreign policy in Southeast Asia so far under the Biden administration? And then looking at the National Security Strategy, what were your key takeaways from that? Uh
1: thanks Paul. I think there's a couple of key points there. First, to set the tone right, I think there's a lot of misconception uh, about ASEAN centrality itself. I think for many ASEAN policymakers and leaders, ASEAN centrality means the process, the process of convening meetings, the process of organizing uh, the ASEAN Regional Forum, East Asia Summit, ADMM Plus and others, which is why it's important for ASEAN policymakers and leaders to see uh, the US president, for example, showing up at the East Asia Summit. So the process is the prize. But for Mm. external partners, including the United States, centrality tends to be equated with the ability to solve problems or outcomes, uh, whether it's about the South China Sea or Myanmar. So this is where I think there is often um, frustration on both sides uh, in ASEAN uh, policymaker circle because there seems to be uh, no understanding and appreciation of the process, while external partners tend to be frustrated because ASEAN doesn't seem to be solving regional problems mm-hmm. or changing strategic outcomes. So this is, I think, the first uh, misconception. Mm-hmm. Secondly, I think what's also crucial is the distinction between engaging ASEAN as a regional grouping and engaging individual ASEAN states. These two things are not mutually uh, interchangeable. Uh, Doing more with Vietnam, with Singapore, with Indonesia does not mean you're doing stuff with ASEAN. Um, So this is why um, I invite the listeners uh, to look at ASEAN's website, there's a section there on dialogue partners, and there you can see how developed uh, is ASEAN's engagement with its dialogue partners, China, Russia, Australia, Japan, the US, and others. And if you look at that list, you will see that Australia and China and Japan have a number uh, of of significant funds and programs dedicated specifically to ASEAN related programs and activities, which are entirely separate from the bilateral engagement. So which is Mm. why I think when you look at Uh, U.S. official fact sheets, for example, you would see that often there's a conflation between engaging individual Southeast Asian states um, and engaging ASEAN as a whole. And lastly, I think when it comes to the national security strategy and and Biden's overall uh, track record on Southeast Asian um, engagement and policy, I think what we've seen in the past few years is what I call nibbling around the edges, kind of engaging on a a small number of important but long-term issues, whether it's about climate change, technology, health security, and others, without necessarily engaging at the heart of what Southeast Asian policymakers care about, which is their own domestic legitimacy and standing. And this is where the economic engagement uh, is always uh, being touted as the necessary ingredient uh, for U.S. engagement and why you see uh in in various uh, public statements southeast asian leaders often talk about cptpp uh, and now there's the ipef but that tells you that for them the domestic legitimacy piece of u.s engagement is 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 crucial uh so yeah. i'm not saying that these areas of uh, of engagement on climate change environment education science um, and technology are not important they are um and and to some extent the fact that there is a bit of a divergence in terms of the domestic priorities of Southeast Asian states and what the U.S. is willing to engage them is not a necessarily a bad thing. If uh, if we were to 100% follow the domestic priorities of Southeast Asian states, then the U.S. might encourage, for example, domestic repressions and stronger surveillance. And that's certainly uh, not the way to go. So in some ways, I think it's good uh, that the U.S. picks on some issues where it has a competitive edge. Uh, But I think the U.S. should also reckon with the fact that these are long-term issues and the cumulative effect might not be seen for another five to ten years. And so there's a bit of a patience, I think, that Mm -hmm. if U.S. chose this path of engaging uh, on, on policy areas by nibbling around the edges, then the U.S. should not expect to see broader strategic alignment away from China or closer. Uh, to the mm. United States, in that sense.
0: Well, those are those are three terrific uh, points uh, to start out with. And you know, your your first point about the process is the prize. I think you said describing you know ASEAN and the way ASEAN works. I'm reminded of my days um, as the White House representative to the six party talks, and mm. uh, we used to complain uh, to the Chinese that they wanted, it seemed to us, they wanted to just simply manage the problem and we wanted to solve the problem. So I'm familiar with that concept in in other areas of uh, Asian sort of challenges. Um, But I I do take your point on that. I do notice that, you know, participating in meetings, having all parties there, understanding the perspectives of all key parties uh, is a really important part of the process. Uh, and i can I can see the dynamic where the u s. Uh, is pushing more for s- finding some resolution, making progress and solving. And that's a very American uh, way to approach things. Um, so I, I, you know, completely uh, understand that. In terms of the distinction with ASEAN uh, as a group and then engaging individual states, I take it you do not mean it's not important to engage individual states. But it is not the same thing as engaging ASEAN as a group. And the one question I had there is, you mentioned um, in the the dialogue partners that you know China, Australia, Japan. I think you mentioned were had well developed kind of programs and funds, but the U.S. Uh, I take it from your comments does not. And I just wanted to follow up: what is the history there? Um, and you know, is that that to me, uh, as the U.S. looks to engage deeper in the region, which clearly seems to be a signal that I'm receiving, would be uh, an area of good opportunity and good recommendation to the U.S. government. And so I just wanted to ask a a follow-up question on that. And then your third point, nibbling around the edges, working on issues that do matter uh, to ASEAN and countries in the region, but the economic component, uh, which we hear often uh, as a concern, that's not as robust as it should be from the US. And I think that's largely due to our domestic political situation and in particular around the issue of trade and what we can offer and market access is not uh, up for offer these days, which is really unfortunate. There's a lot of us that would like to see the US uh, back in the CPTPP or or back into that framing when, when we were uh, trying to get the US into it, it was called the TPP. Um, but my question on that one is on IPEF and. You know, it seems from my perspective, the U.S. has heard the region saying you need to up your economic game and offer more and show greater commitment on the economic side. And it does seem to me that countries have um, responded positively to IPEF, in a sense saying, okay, we'll give you a shot here. Let's see what you got. But give us a sense, if you could, just second question on, on IPEF is how does ASEAN, the countries in in Southeast Asia, how are how, how are they viewing IPEF in your in your sense?
1: Sure, uh, let me talk about the um, the ASEAN dialogue partners uh, first. Um, I think what you see is uh, a, the result of an accumulation of U.S.'s engagement with Southeast Asia from a geostrategic and geopolitical sense, which is. Um, The U.S. for a bit was not seen as a resident Power and therefore engagement with Southeast Asian states were done based on whatever U.S. has a particular interest on. So, for example, in some countries like Indonesia and and the Philippines, um, the early two thousands was the heyday of the global war on terror, uh, right? And then now there's China. So, what that means is that ASEAN as a multilateral grouping wasn't necessarily uh, the first order of business mm-hmm. that you have. To have specific strategic interests uh, uh, to deal with individual states. And that's fine. Uh, I do think that uh, uh, it, is, it is the cost of doing business, which is uh, the US needs to develop custom tailored bilateral approaches. But the US things work uh, in its engagement with Vietnam may not necessarily work in its engagement with Indonesia, may not necessarily work with engagement with Malaysia, Indonesia, and so forth. So I think a custom tailored Mm -hmm. individual bilateral approaches to Southeast Asia, I think was necessary, still is, Uh, but that doesn't mean, I think now that the U.S. should uh, um, sort of accumulate all of that and call it ASEAN engagement, right? There needs to be a separate ASEAN basket. And I think this is where um, not having a U.S. ASEAN ambassador for a couple of years kind of hurts, right? Um, After Nina left, uh, 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 it took a couple of years before uh uh, we have a new one uh this year so i think that that uh, uh created a bit of a problem and when i was there um and i watched uh how nina used to interact with uh at the time robert blake the u.s ambassador to indonesia it does uh from time to time get a little bit uh shall we say it requires some adjustments, you know, which one uh, does the U.S. focus on in terms of ASEAN as a whole versus being the U.S. ambassador in Jakarta, which is focusing on Indonesia. It it, 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 it can be a bit overlapping, uh, but also kind of contradicting from time to time. Uh, but like I said, um, the way that I look at the example of the success of ASEAN's dialogue partner engagement with ASEAN is to look at uh, Japan, Australia and, and China. These are the three countries that really invested a lot um, in terms of ASEAN specific programs and funds and activities from education, uh, from people to people exchanges, track two dialogues, uh, high level meetings and stuff. And this is how they get to be a part of the ASEAN processes. And um, given the fact that there's about uh, 1,500 meetings a year uh, across, across different agencies and, and policies from health to education to financial tech being a part of that ASEAN process means that you have to invest in these programs so i think this is where uh, yeah. the us has some catch-up um there uh, yeah. i think it's there uh and we might see more uh, after the november uh, comprehensive strategic partnership um uh, movement uh in the next month so we'll see and hopefully uh there's more but i'm not i'm not super convinced yet until mm. i see the the details of the program
0: we we now have an ambassador there as of september so yeah. uh, just over a month johan abraham um uh, mm. sworn in and will be in jakarta there with sung kim who's our ambassador to indonesia uh johan's uh has uh, quite a bit of experience he was. Uh, he was deputy assistant to the president, uh, chief of staff, and executive secretary at the National Security Council before coming out. He also served in the um, the Obama Biden uh, White House as well, on the National Economic Council. So he's got a lot of experience, but he's got a lot of uh, political you know heft as well. And so I think that bodes well. Uh, and these kind of recommendations I think are really important. So thank you for for explaining all of that. Um, and sorry, I interrupted you on your your last point.
1: No, no. I, I just want to say I I fully agree with that, and 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 I think it's a good sign uh, uh, that Johannes is is coming at a crucial time in U.S. ASEAN relationship. Uh, the Comprehensive Strategic Partnership could actually set us off into a different trajectory. Uh, but I do want to note one I think interesting distinction uh, in how the U.S. has engaged Southeast Asia and ASEAN, and how China has engaged ASEAN uh, and Southeast Asia. I think the U.S. has built a deeper reservoir of engagement over the last 50, 60 years. Uh, People to people, education, security relationships, while China is only starting to engage uh, Southeast Asia closer in the past 20, 30 years. So, in that sense, I think you see a more bottom-up approach from the United States. And there's less of a compelling need to have these, you know, strategic partnership, comprehensive partnership, big framework, mm-hmm. because the US is feels that it's doing well on, on, on the key policy issues. But China actually did it in the reverse, right? They launched first these big frameworks and and and, and partnerships and then fill it over time. Which is mm. why you see in the last uh two, three decades, a lot of programs and activities come from these big frameworks and strategic partnership and and all of that. So yeah. it's an interesting contrast, I think, in how China and the US approaches Southeast Asia. And we are, I think, at a critical juncture in that sense, which is why I think the economic piece, and this goes to your question on IPath, is actually uh, quite fascinating, right? Because I think the debate uh, around TPP and then CPTPP initially uh, 10 years ago or so was about exclusionary uh, trade regimes, right? Um, are we gonna see uh, fracturing uh, trade regimes where China with the ASEAN China Free Trade Agreement and RCEP uh, uh uh in some parts and then the us with uh, tpp and others and i think the challenge of regional economic integration particularly with regards to asean's own agenda through the asean economic community is to navigate and integrate these uh these emerging regional economic uh frameworks right and I pass- have. Yeah. I think uh, uh, is part of this of, of of this larger trend. And this is why I think uh, you see a lot more support for IPEF uh, for a couple of reasons. One, I think we're not sure what this would lead to. Sure, there's a discussion for higher standards, uh, but it's not clear uh, the kind of things that, as you said, in terms of market access and all of that will be on the table given US domestic politics. Uh, but there is a, a low cost, um, entry, if you will, to sign on to IPEF right now, because in the minds of some policymakers, this is essentially a lot of process with no clear gain, which also means no clear risk at this point. Uh, the mm. joke in Southeast Asia is that IPEF is proof um, that ASEAN has successfully socialized the United States in its own <laughs> ways, which is to have meetings, to discuss future meetings. It's uh, and process. that's process, right? right? It's, it's process, classes, so congratulations. So uh, Washington for joining the ASEAN process way, uh, but I do think it is crucial in the long term because uh, the future of economic uh, uh, engagement and and um, and technology in the region will be centered around issues like standards, uh, education, and, and 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 new and emerging technologies, supply chain, and all of that, which we haven't really quite figured out, and certainly the pandemic. Uh, has hit home the message that, you know, a globalization and, and and integration does come with supply chain vulnerabilities issues. And this is something that we haven't quite figured out. Uh, but for Southeast Asians, uh, right now, ipath is, uh, is at least a good signal that the US is willing to put some economic skin in the game. How far and mm-hmm. to what extent, we don't know. Uh, But at this point, we also don't want to spook the U.S. in that sense, uh, uh, because we would like to see U.S. economic presence more uh, in Southeast Asia. So if this low-cost, low-risk entry into IPAV means the U.S. will get to stay and to potentially engage the region more, it's certainly worth pursuing.
0: Hey, thanks for listening to the show. If you've enjoyed listening to the China in the World podcast, You'll want to check out all the other great podcasts produced by the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. My colleagues around the world talk with ambassadors, leading journalists, and world-class scholars on some of the most pressing international issues. You can find the links to the other Carnegie podcasts in the show notes. Thanks again for listening. Evan, we've talked a little bit uh so far about the U.S.-China dynamic, but I want to delve into that a little bit deeper. Um, this is a subject, uh, you know, that I hope uh, working with you uh, that that uh, you can focus on in, in your role at Carnegie China. And you wrote recently in the Financial Review that uh, a regional order that excludes one great power over the other, that being, of course, the U.S. and China, may make sense geostrategically but be unpalatable politically in the region and i thought that was very interesting the biden administration for its part often talks about rules based order in the indo pacific such as peaceful resolution of disputes and rule of law freedom of navigation things like that how do you describe how would you describe to our listeners uh, china's view of regional order you've talked a little bit about the way that they approach things uh, in terms of putting out large initiatives and then filling them in. But how do you describe China's view of regional order and how have these two views of regional order, the US view and the Chinese view, been received and interpreted by countries in Southeast Asia? I know it's a big question.
1: Uh, Sure, let me uh, take a stab at it. Um, I think there's two, two prongs here. One is sort of China's views of global order in general, uh, particularly with regards to uh, international institutions. And in this, I think uh, it's safe to say that it's not necessarily the case that China is against all uh, global institutions and organizations. Certainly um, the US and China share some aversion against some institutions like ICJ and ICC, uh, but support others, um, uh, you know, certainly in terms of issues or institutions that undermines potentially china's domestic uh, legitimacy like r2p and, and and you know civil and political rights and, and democracy promotion and all of that is certainly again so selective uh, support for some uh, global institutions in order i think is 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 sort of normal and i think this translates a little bit uh, to china's approach to regional order which i think has more more push than uh, than the global side for us here in Southeast Asia. I think, first of all, certainly China views its regional order to be one that um, regional states do not challenge the legitimacy of CCP rule. And I think in this one, uh, I can fairly say probably almost every country in Southeast Asia would agree. I don't see any Southeast Asian countries necessarily uh, questioning the legitimacy of CCP rule uh, in general. A second, uh, a second key element of, of China's vision of, of regional order, I think, is that how do China uh, in, induce or or create an environment in which regional states do not challenge. Um, Uh, PRC's policies on sensitive issues like Taiwan, Hong Kong, Xinjiang, and others. And I think, in this front, China is, I would say, quite successful. Um, I think the growth in economic engagement, and uh, uh, particularly uh, with key um, states around the region, I think has made it harder for regional states to come out uh, more publicly uh, against China. On these issues, in fact, on on issues like Xinjiang, it's it's certainly the case that there is both a uh, an amplification of common uh, interests over counterterrorism, for example, um, as well as other issues. So I think on 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 the condition in which regional order means states uh, do not challenge. Um, Uh, China's policies on these key issues. I think we're not as successful uh, as the first one, which is not challenging a CCP rule. Uh, But I think on on these sensitive issues, uh, uh, it's it's very hard uh, for regional states to uh, publicly come against China on these Mm -hmm. issues. Uh, Mm -hmm. The third element, I think, is where uh, the track record is a bit uh, less uh, positive for China, which is China wants a regional order that gradually excludes the United States from the region, particularly on the military front, and increase the strategic deference uh, of regional states to China. On this, I think it ebbs and flows. I think there was a time uh, when uh, it would be easy to make the case that the U.S. is uh, detrimental uh, to regional order and even global order. I remember, for example, the debate uh, in the mid-2000s when um, the U.S. invaded Iraq. How much, how badly that was received in the region, and 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 how easily uh, China's narrative resonated in Southeast Asia uh, that unipolarity means means interventionism. Um, and of course, uh, you know we've seen how China's behavior in the maritime domain actually increases. Uh, uh, Southeast Asia's security engagement with the United States uh, um and others. So I think on this particular piece of the regional order that excludes the United States, I think China is not is not doing uh, uh particularly well. The fourth element is where I think China is not Doing well, but it's actually on the process of doing well, which is uh, to what extent regional institutions like ASEAN and others uh, um, is is driven by China, with China at the core of, of these institutions. And I think uh, through China's engagement and 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 mutual socialization uh, with these regional institutions like the ASEAN Regional Forum, East Asia Summit, and others, I think we've reached the point where. Uh, the tables are turned now. If we in Southeast Asia had expected to socialize China in our ways and to make it much more convergent to our agenda, I think now that uh, the power, both economic and military, uh, has been reversed, I think China now seems ready to turn the tables. Uh, We see this, for example, in the South China Sea through the ASEAN-China Code of Conduct process. For about 20 years, uh, we in ASEAN thought we were socializing China uh, 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 to mm-hmm. peaceful management of the disputes. And in fact, now we've seen that now that China has spied its time and, and took over some of the key military uh, um, uh, islets and tolls and, and reefs in the South China Sea, now that China has, feels secure, now China wants to accelerate uh, the code of conduct process when we are not um, already. So I think in this sense, China is, is not fully there yet, but I think the impression is that China is increasingly able to draw regional institutions um, and agenda setting uh, um, uh, to its benefit. So I think this is where overall uh, my sense of where the regional order that China envision uh, and why it's have some some successes and and and, and, and some failures um, but the key to this regional order um, and these different elements remain I think with the to what extent can China enhances the domestic legitimacy of key uh, players in regional states across Southeast Asia? For the Mm -hmm. US, um, this engagement with key regional players for a long time was on the security realm, particularly on Mm -hmm. on defense and and mill to mill. China's engagement now is with the political parties and the business groups. Uh, So this is the economic realm. Now, this is why I think there is a danger of domestic polarization, not just regional polarization, because you start to see the growth of pro-U.S. camps and pro-China camps in the domestic environment of these regional states in Southeast Asia. And this is why uh, regional states often say, don't make us choose, because they are also concerned with these domestic polarization.
0: Because in their own countries, there's different constituencies that are more supportive of China and others that are more supportive of the U.S. based on what contributions those two countries are making to those uh, countries, their politics, and their economies. Is that is that basically how you see a a potential polarization there?
1: Yes, absolutely, and this is where the history of of the region is is also important because uh, during the Cold War, the decolonization period, if you will, uh, for many Southeast Asian states, external intervention by great powers was the norm, right? Um, so. Yeah. Even at the hint that external powers, whether it's the United States or China, is somehow influencing uh, domestic um, uh, politics, that's uh, a serious uh, domestic crisis in the making there. Um, It's not just an issue of um, resisting or resilience, but it is uh, uh, creating polarization. And as I said, with with the U.S.-China competition ramping up, across different domains, not just economics and security, but technology, education, uh, disaster relief, health, vaccine. Um, this also creates new, uh, uh, I think, domestic constituents, right, for both yeah. US and China. And this is where the fractional um, uh, yeah. domestic milieu is, is more, much more uh, at risk.
0: Interesting. Now, neither China nor the US at least explicitly frame their engagement with Southeast Asia in terms of bilateral competition, um, but nevertheless, uh, that that competition does loom in the background of uh, of their diplomacy. I mean, the Biden administration has heard very you know loud and clear. We do not want to choose, and you hear the Biden administration you know repeating that often. Their understanding of that. Uh, but but the competition um between the u s and China is pretty intense and competition of systems, competition for influence, range of competition. How do countries, in your view in the in in Southeast Asia view rising u s china competition here? how are they positioning themselves to defend their interests in that context?
1: Well, I think on one level, we're talking about uh legitimacy, right? Um, and, and I think this is where uh, the issue of rhetoric um, does play a factor, uh, because if, let's say the U.S. does not mention China by name, but highlighting uh, certain features of regional engagement that clearly everyone can see was about China, then it is about showing, hey, let me tell you how bad China is and how good we are. Uh, even if not explicitly, right? And that kind of narrative just doesn't necessarily fly all the time. My favorite um, key contrast was between uh, Secretary Austin's first speech in Singapore uh, versus Secretary Blinken's speech uh, in Jakarta, which was very contrast. I think with Secretary Austin, uh, uh, rhetorically, he showed uh, humility and understanding of the limits of American power, but here's how we're going to help you. Was Blinken, uh, in in short, was basically, here's how we're not China, here's why we're different from China, and here's how we're going to do stuff with you. Those mm-hmm. are, 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 are subtle hints, of course, but it's certainly not lost uh, in, in, in regional policymakers. So I think one should be cautious about saying, well, we're not asking you to choose publicly. Well, yeah, You don't, but when you create these values-based approaches and distinctions, uh, um, you do uh, eventually make, uh, you you put these regional countries on a spot, right? Why would they come out publicly in favor of certain policies that put them in alignment with states that are deemed as bad or or not good, right? Mm. So I think in that sense, uh, there is a cost to being uh, to focus on values-based approach on the rhetoric. And of course, from a policy standpoint, beyond uh, the rhetoric, we do see that there are trade-offs. We want to engage uh, Huawei, for example, which we certainly uh, could not do uh, uh, um, in terms of um, not raising a resistance from the U.S. Uh, so, On some issues, you start to see if we do X with China, means we cannot do it with the US. If we do Y with the US, that we may not be able to do it uh, with China. And I think this is where this exclusionary uh, competition across different policy domains is a concern. And at the heart of it, I think if you really ask the question uh, to Southeast Asian states, when we uh, go back to your first question about US-China competition, the implicit assumption is always that you want to see one of them win the competition, U.S. and China. Whilst, in mm-hmm. fact, in the region, many would say we would prefer not to see U.S.-China competition. In fact, mm-hmm. if there is a way in which we can de-escalate competition and have the U.S. and China both work together in Southeast Asia, uh, bringing the different strengths and 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 and, um, and system to bear, that would be the most ideal um uh, scenario and in fact this is uh this was the scenario in the early 2000s right when we also uh, was embracing china's economic engagement through the asean china free trade agreement china's entry into uh, the wto these these kinds of scenarios with us and china work together not in competition with one another was the dream back then so now if you look back 20 years later we are still trying to see is that dream really dead are we just going to expect now only two scenarios either us and china wins in a zero-sum competition or that there is some peaceful management in between but there is no going back uh, to that era of us and china working together in southeast asia i think a lot of policy makers would still prefer the dream to be alive but i think we are now Increasingly accepting that maybe, maybe the best we could hope for is that we can encourage some peaceful um, and cooperative management of the competition uh, uh, while we try to figure out how to navigate ourselves. But we're not necessarily sure we want a US China competition to be won decisively by one or the other. An entirely China-dominated region is not something that we prefer, and we certainly don't prefer an entirely US-dominated region as well. Um, so this is where I think, again, yeah. it, it it goes back to that, that preference for a US-China working together, uh, but yeah. also it goes back to the point on uh, domestic legitimacy. If we are seen as favoring one superpower over the other, then we are effectively saying, hey, one domestic group, we are favoring you over the other. So it has implications to how the U.S.-China manages its competition with China and whether or not there is an end game uh, uh, to move towards to.
0: Well, that's fascinating and I, you know, I, I served in uh, a different, a, a previous administration, Bush administration and then early in the Obama administration and the idea of uh, finding ways to cooperate with China was uh, was important and it was a major focus. Uh, and but as you as you suggest, we're we're really in a different different phase, um, and that's harder to envision now in the current state of relations between the U.S. and China, which I think is is unfortunate. Unfor- we've gotten uh, to that point, but it is the the reality. You know, you started out uh, in in talking about the U.S.-China competition by. By talking about, you know, even if you don't name China and the US as is it's is pursuing its efforts and initiatives in the region, even if it doesn't explicitly mention China, but everybody knows it kind of has to do with China, that doesn't always work well. And in that context, uh, the, my last question is about the Quad. Because, of course, I notice in all of the Quad statements uh, recently, China is not mentioned at all. Uh, and I would argue, and I've argued in the past, it does represent a pretty positive and affirmative agenda. Um, but clearly, uh, behind it all, there is a strategic element, uh, and there there are concerns about about China that are at the heart of what a, a lot of the initiatives and efforts that the Quad is is undertaking, whether that's technology or maritime surveillance, a number of initiatives you can make a, you know, clear line to concerns around China. But I wanted to just ask, you know, you wrote recently um, on Southeast Asian uh, views of the Quad in the Journal of the Indo-Pacific Affairs. And just the last question would be, you know, just how do you see countries in the region viewing the Quad and, and do you see, for, foresee the possibility of the Quad maybe engaging with countries beyond the original four members?
1: Uh, I think in short, uh, Southeast Asian states do not warmly embrace the Quad, but they're not supremely against it as well. Uh, I think lukewarm for the most part on average, if you want to average it out. Um, I think some countries are certainly more supportive of a a different type of U.S. engagement with regional powers, and uh, especially if we understand it to be as one uh, balancing option against China, but we don't want to publicly embrace it uh, for fear of, of of the repercussions with China we talked about earlier. And those who are against it um, are also probably unsure uh, in a couple of ways, unsure about what that means for China, obviously, uh, but also in terms of ASEAN. There is a concern about the extent to which will the Quad complement ASEAN uh, mechanisms? Mm-hmm. Will it, will it supplant them or will it simply coexist and do different things? And this is mm-hmm. where I think the evolution of the quad itself is, is intriguing. And, and I think it's still ongoing. So we don't know yeah. where quad might end up with. You see debates about, oh, quad has moved into public goods provision and that's great. But others say, well, that's not good. We need the more of a hard security edge to the quad, right? Um, I saw a few days ago, uh, there was an idea for the Quad to have a standing maritime force in the region to do what I'm not particularly sure. Uh, But that tells you that there's at least three images of the Quad in these camps that are concerned about the Quad. One, is the Quad going to be another great power proxy? Which means whatever it does is an extension of US-China strategic competition. A second uh, image is, is the Quad going to be a new norms entrepreneur will it try to reshape uh, uh norms that asean has been has been pushing uh for the last 30 40 years so if it's a norms exercise then you might see more overlap and therefore potentially uh um in in contradiction or or in challenge uh with some of the norms that uh, that asean has been has been pushing for and the last image is of course the public goods provider and this is Okay, uh, this is great, this is welcome, whether it's about maritime domain awareness or vaccine, but the challenge with with public goods provision is how do you avoid redundancies and overlaps, right? Because these are not new areas. Uh, These are issue areas and and engagement that's been around uh, for the last few decades on maritime domain awareness, for example. If Quad is doing X, does that mean the US will do less of X? Um, So will this reduce existing bilateral engagement on these public goods? Uh, And I think this is where each Quad's individual bilateral relationship with regional states will be key. Uh, Australia's relationship with Indonesia, Indonesia's relationship with India, with the United States, and Japan are all very different, right? Uh, They're all necessarily in a good... um, a strategic positive sense. So, this debate, I think, between whether or not Quad represents yet another great power proxy, will the Quad be a norms entrepreneur changing what ASEAN has been doing, or whether Quad is simply providing public goods, but at yeah. the expense of, of bilateral public goods, is why you see those on the, yeah, I'm not so sure this is a great thing, uh, CAMP is, is, is sort of hanging on to. But overall, I don't think it's necessarily good or bad yet. Uh, so we'll see
0: well that's a, a fascinating uh, description and uh you're you're right the evolution you know is is quite interesting in fact i was in the white house when the quad started and of course it was response to the um uh, 2004 indian ocean earthquake uh that mm. happened on boxer's day in 2004 hit over a dozen countries around the world deaths you know around 150,000 and and you know, I remember I, at the time I was working for National Security Advisor Condoleezza Rice, and she she made the point that you know the world could not act, and it was up to countries in the Indo-Pacific that had naval capa- capabilities of scale to move in urgently. And it was Japan, the U.S., Australia, and India, obviously, went in to sort of rescue people trapped and get relief out there, and and all the rest. Eventually, it was handed over to the UN. But that was the start, and. Um, people often forget that. Your point on security is really interesting because one of the complaints I hear is that the quad is is too heavily security, but then I hear a lot of people arguing that it needs to be more security-focused. So I hear both sides of the argument out here, and I'm not sure. I notice in its evolution, as you sort of suggest, that what we're seeing lately is really around uh, promotion of public goods. And I, I, I personally, just, I think that's a good... Uh, uh, evolution, a good point where where it's at. I mean, I think, you know, you mentioned vaccines and maritime domain awareness and other issues where countries in the region seem to care about those issues, climate change, obviously. Um, the risk to me, and I'd be interested in your view on the public goods provision aspect is that the agenda doesn't get too large and that we lose kind of focus. Um, I notice the agenda getting you know bigger every time I turn around, and I I, I worry that the agenda may uh, over time get get too big, and then we're not able to actually carry out any and any individual initiative uh, to its fruition. But um, I think public goods is what I've seen uh, lately as a major area of emphasis, which to me seems the right direction to go. But I, but I in terms of that agenda, you know, you mentioned a few of those. Um, and that they that they're well received in the region are there are there any risks in moving down the public goods provision that that you see as you as you see how this is evolving
1: well assuming that all members of the quad have the resources and commitment to keep on doing uh, the public goods provision, right? Because we remember uh, when India announced the vaccine part of the Quad uh, right after uh, there was a surge, and therefore some of the vaccine stuff um, get restrained, right? So, you know, assuming that we can we can uh, uh, see a consistency of resources and um, and commitment, the challenge I think would be number one: how do you link up? A public goods provision with existing programs in the region because, precisely right. as you said, precisely because that, these are standard. yeah, 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 precisely because these issues are issues that we care about. That means somewhere down the line, we would have had some framework to address those needs, right? Uh, whether mm-hmm. it's recent or, or old, but there is an existing framework. Do you reinvent the wheel in those areas or do you support existing ones? Uh, What if you're not happy with the existing ones? Do you create a new uh, convergence of of agenda down the line? For example, some are discussing whether or not on vaccine or maybe on maritime, there's a way to link up the individual quad members existing maritime security initiatives with ASEAN. So that where maybe we're talking about five, 10 years, you can see a quad ASEAN maritime security workshop, for example. So there is, are there movements in that direction? I think some would say that would be ideal. Um, it's just that we're not really sure what Quad wants to do uh, itself, right? We're not sure, uh, I mean, it's, it's certainly been elevated and there's certainly more energy in recent years, but is there a long-term blueprint uh, for these things? Because that hinges on an implicit question, which is, does the Quad really want buy-in from Southeast Asia? I'm not sure the answer is a resounding yes. I think some would say it would be great, but we aren't here precisely because we felt um, ASEAN and and Southeast Asia are, are not helping us address our broader strategic needs. So why should we care about whether or not Southeast Asia has buy-in or embraces us? We just have to do our own thing among the four. And others would say, well, no, for Quad to be effectively operating in the region, it needs to get support and buy-in from Southeast Asia. So as long as this debate is um, is unresolved, which is whether or not Quad needs and wants uh, buy-in from Southeast Asia, um, I don't see uh, specific long-term framework emerging that can reduce these redundancies, but uh, prevent overlap and merge them with existing mechanisms for public goods provision.
0: Well, Evan, thank you very much for your time this morning. You've, uh, you've shared a lot of important insights, uh, and perspectives on these issues and we, uh, look forward, I look forward to continuing to stay engaged, uh, as as these things evolve and as the situation develops. But thank you very much for engaging with the China in the World audience this morning.
1: Uh, Thanks for having me, Paul. Appreciate it.
0: Thank you for listening to the China in the World podcast. For more episodes and research, please go to carnegieendowment.org. This episode was produced by Nathaniel Schur with assistance from Wang Yuanhang, Michael Malinconi, and Sama Kuba. The music was composed by Spencer Barnett.